Beloved, take your Bible and turn to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. We will end that chapter today. Galatians chapter 4. If you're visiting with us and you do not have a copy of God's Word, just look right in front of you, the rack right in front of you. You will see that there. Please take that and follow along with us today. When you get to Galatians 4, go to chapter 4, verse 21. Let me read for us. Let's set our hearts on the text that we'll be studying this morning. Galatians 4, 21 to 31. This is the word of the Lord. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now these may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, You who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is indeed the word of the Lord. You, you look at that passage and you see an account from the life of Abraham. And you know, the life of Abraham is not unfamiliar to our study in Galatians. Is that not true? Just take chapter 3 for a moment. Maybe your eyes will scan there in a quick overview. The patriarch is mentioned repeatedly in that chapter, and we looked at that. Along or woven through the famous events of the patriarch's life. And we looked at those in our study as the Bible records them, and particularly as it's recorded in Genesis 15. We have, of course, the covenant with Abraham. Remember, through you, God says, all the nations shall be blessed. We looked at that. What about the faith of Abraham? Count that faith counted to Abraham as righteousness. Genesis fifteen six. after the promise. And the promise, what was that? The promise to Abraham, a son. Yes, a son. Think about it for a moment. A 75-year-old man looking up at the stars with a barren wife And God says, I promise you a son. I promise you a son. That was the promise. In those circumstances, a son, think about it again, with his age and stage and with his wife's state, a son that if a son was going to come, it was very clearly going to have to be all God intervening, right? That was the only way it was going to happen. Miraculous. Hence, a son of faith and promise. Well, that was a wonderful promise, and again, one that we looked at in depth in chapter 3. And as we begin this morning, we're going to pick up with the birth, the birth that comes after that promise. There is a birth that comes after that promise. Remember, we went through Genesis 15. We just simply, as we did in chapter 3, we're going to pick up the account right from where we left off when we were studying chapter 3. You can turn there if you want to, but you don't have to. I'm just going to read the beginning of Genesis 16. Again, as we will be there this morning. So again, right after the promise, Abraham's faith, we continue in Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be 
that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. That account, again, as we're just picking up the account in Genesis, a son is indeed born to Abraham, but it would appear, it would appear hardly a son of promise, right? There is a birth, but hardly a son of promise. Consider with me, look at the text, the circumstances before and after his birth. They are filled with sin and strife, hardly the stuff of promise. Sarah gives another woman... She gives another woman, she gives her servant to her husband to lay with him. Abraham, the man of faith, listens to Sarah in the sinful plan and complies with that adultery. Sarah, whose idea this was after the consumption then, is filled with contempt for Hagar. Crazy circumstances for this situation. Is this then the son of the promise? I mean, it had been a full decade since the promise, and you might say, well, 10 months is long enough to wait for something, right? We get that today. 10 months would be a long time to wait for a promise. 10 years, surely the expiration clock is done. Surely. Well, it was indeed a son of Abraham. The text makes no doubt about that. This is indeed a son of Abraham. However, the end of the chapter tells us very clearly why this son, Ishmael, was not the son of the promise. The end of Genesis 16, the last two verses say this, And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. Three times in those two verses to close Genesis 16, we are told this, Hagar bore. Hagar bore. Ishmael was from Hagar, not Sarah. Now listen, that is one way we know that this was not the son of the promise. Yet, 15 years later, 15 years later, think about that, 25 years after the promise, Abraham fathers another son at the miraculous age of 100. And this will confirm it. Let me just read these verses in Genesis 21. This is also a birth that comes after the promise. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Isaac, that is the son of the promise. And mark it right there in the text, Sarah bore. And how do we know it's the son of the promise? Listen, the Lord visited Sarah. The Lord did this to Sarah. That's the promise. Two sons born by two mothers under two very different set of circumstances, as you see there. And that is precisely why Paul's point is that, as we arrive at the end of chapter 4 here, when he looks at two sons in contrast. That is the point, as we're going to see today. Paul, as we've noted already and noted last week, has laid out his case of justification by faith over works. I mean, we've heard it so much in this study, have we not? And I hope... It's just embedded when you think of Galatians and really the New Testament and really the Bible. Man is not justified by anything else other than faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
Now Paul is appealing to the Galatians, and before he presses more imperatives, remember we looked at the first command, the first imperative last week, before he presses any more imperatives, he's going to press his overall point one more time. One more time he needs to bring it to bear. And this time, it is with a picture, a historical picture from the history of Israel. And again, he goes into the life of Abraham to make his point. A life of Abraham that the newly converted Galatians would have heard all about. But remember, these are pagans, right? They didn't have the rich history that the Israelites did. But they would have heard of Abraham. And now more as these Jewish Christian missionaries invade town, they would have heard even more about Abraham and even more how they must be connected to Abraham. But listen, they wouldn't have just heard about Genesis 15 or Genesis 21, They would have heard about passages like Genesis 17 and the covenant of circumcision. I mean, that's what we're talking about with Abraham, the Judaizer would say. That is how one comes in line with God and is made right with God under the law. Circumcision, that sign of the covenant, that old covenant mark, that law work, work of the law those Judaizers imposed on those young believers in Galatia. Works of the law, the Judaizers were saying, that were still necessary, here it is, to perfect one's faith. You needed law works to perfect your faith, to make you complete. And here it is, you need law works to make you right with God. You need circumcision and the like to be made right with God. And the Judaizers would have pointed to Abraham and to Isaac and said, we are sons of Abraham through Isaac. We are sons of the promise. I want to be clear this morning as we start. This is what they would have said. We are through Isaac. That's what their boast would have been. Yet, think about this, Isaac, the son of the promise, the son of the promise, they were living anything but by promise, right? Anything but by faith. They were coming, they would have said we're sons of the promise, but we're living as children of works. That was what they would have said in Galatia. It wasn't new faith in the promise. It was in the old sign, right? The old sign of the covenant. And they couldn't let go. And by that refusal, that false gospel, Paul would show who their line was really through. Now this really sets us up for what Paul is going to do masterfully in this text today. It wasn't through Isaac. You know, you can just imagine the Judaizer, right? The proud Jew would say, Isaac, we are children of Isaac, the son of the promise. And what Paul is going to do is turn it on its head and say, no, 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 no. When you submit to law works, let me tell you who your father really is. That cast out son. So we need to keep this in mind. This is what Paul is going to do. He's going to turn the whole argument, the Judaizer argument, on its head in this text. Here Paul To do that, we'll contrast these two sons of Abraham and their true children. Their true children. Each has true children. And each piece, Westmount, so important for us today. Let's begin with the first. Let's look at the two births. The two births. Paul begins his contrast with first a look at the circumstances around each birth. That's what he's going to do to take us back to this account. Let's bring our attention back to verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? You look at that and Paul plays off the word law there. You see it twice? He's going to play off that word law. How so? Well, law referred to both the Mosaic law. We've talked about that. That was law. But law also referred to what the law was in, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, right? That's what law is in both cases. In other words, Paul says, you who desire to be under the law, under the Mosaic law, do you not listen to the law? Do you not listen to what it says in those first five books? Do you not even listen to what the law is saying? And it's a great point. Paul does what many authorities still do today, right? And many of us have had this said to us, are you thinking about what you're saying? Think about what you're saying. Use the same rationale that you're bringing to me. Filter it through that grid to think about what you're saying. We still do that today. Paul is saying, you are so compelled to the law. Well, let's take a look at the law. 
If you're so compelled by the law, well, let's go look at it. Look at verse 22. For it is written. That's your cue, right? We've looked at this before. For it is written. You know when you see that, Paul, Jesus, the New Testament writer, is going back to a prophetic writing. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Look at that. Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. He sets up them together, right side by side, the contrast, one by slave, one by free. And this is what we looked at off the top, right? We read that account. Abraham had two sons, one Ishmael, who was, of course, by Hagar, who was a slave woman, a servant woman. That birth is recorded in Genesis 16, again, that we read. And the other, Isaac, was by a free woman, Sarah. And we also read that account in Genesis 21. By the way, if you're wondering, when you're, what does free woman mean? It simply means that Sarah was his wife, right? There, she was free. She wasn't the servant. She wasn't the slave. Sarah was the free woman because she was the wife, the voluntary wife of, of Abraham. So Abraham has two sons, one from a slave woman, one from a free woman. Next, look at verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Here we learn, not only did the two sons have two different mothers, but they were also born in two very different ways, right? And we already know this as we looked at it already, but let's unpack it a bit more. Think about this, the the two births. One, Ishmael, the son of the slave woman, Hagar, was born according to the flesh. According to the flesh. Contrasted to the other Isaac, the son of the free woman, Sarah, was born through promise, flesh and promise. Let's keep those in tension. Now, in one sense, we understand that both sons were born in the flesh, right? Like all of us. That's not the point Paul is making here, right? That's not what we're talking about when we talk about flesh. It is by flesh, but in a very different sense that he is referring to it here. For one, it was flesh in the sense of normal human procreation, natural order. That is, of course, not how Isaac was born. What did we look at off the top? The text makes very clear God had to intervene. God had to visit Sarah. God had to do and so on, right? You see the difference between those two births. One according to the flesh, man's machinations and all those things, and one very clearly by God's divine appointment, his intervention supernaturally. That's one, yet there is another aspect of the flesh with Ishmael, which is the work of the flesh. Beloved, we need to see this. This is the work of the flesh. This is really what Paul has in view here. This aspect of the flesh will be developed in chapter 5. When you think about the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit, right? that tension in the Christian life, we're going to get there in chapter 5, but this is what's in view. Paul, in one sense, kind of setting the table for what's to come. And, and Ishmael's birth, according to the flesh, demonstrates this contrast. Let's look at it. I mean, think with me for a moment on the birth of Ishmael. It's not God's intervention, but it was what? Sarah's plan. Sarah's plan. She contrived it. It was a reliance on self, a trust in self, a reliance on man. It was all about fleshly works. I need to give my servant to my husband so that a son will be born. Do you see that? You see all the things that Sarah thinks she has to do do, do. That's exactly what we're talking about with fleshly works. In fact, let me remind you precisely what Sarah says. Listen carefully and think about, beloved, our own lives before the Lord. Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So, what does she say to Hagar go, or to Abraham? Go into my servant. It may be, listen to that, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. By her. I mean, that sentiment alone says so much about being governed by the flesh. Do you see what's governing Sarah and her thinking there? I need to get on this thing, and I need to do it. Sarah, after 10 years, says, the Lord has prevented, the Lord has prevented, and think with me, as if that's it. Was there an expiration date on the promise? 
Did God say, well, if it doesn't happen in 10 years, you know, you giddy up with your own plan? No. It's almost as if Sarah said after 10 years, well, I'm done waiting. Time's up. Beloved, listen to me. That work of the flesh, you know it. It's called this impatience. Oh, we know it well. Do I see those heads? I'm with you. We are experts at impatience, are we not? And we can't wait for it. Can't wait for it. It sets its own limits. Ten years, impatience says, ten years, I cannot wait a day longer. No. Beloved, listen to me. The flesh never waits on the Lord. The flesh never waits on the Lord. You mark it when you're feeling antsy and restless. When you don't have the answer that you want, the flesh wants to take matters into its own hands. Sarah then, of course, in the flesh, hatches a plan. And note this, a plan by her own reasoning. She says, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. That is just simply if we pause this morning and think. Think about this, wives. You have a plan where you're going to give your husband to another lady. Because of what God has promised you, you know what? Because I I can't wait anymore, I need to give my husband away to another woman. That is the work of the flesh that's called this, irrationality. I was talking with my family this week. We almost pull out these life principles. Sin, beloved, I've told you this how many times? Sin is always irrational. Sin makes no sense. You can break down sin ten ways from Sunday and it never makes sense. In a moment it does, though, doesn't it? Well, I need this, and maybe if I just do that, I mean, yeah. In our fleshly arithmetic, everything makes sense for three seconds until everything falls crashing down, and we realize how irrational it really was. It's a fleshly plan that says, I'm going to give my husband to another woman. Listen, you just have to say that. That's the fleshly plan of Sarah. I'm going to give my beloved to another woman. I ask you this, Westman, how often does the flesh overlook sin, and even treat sin as the cure? How often does the flesh overlook sin and then take another vestige of sin and say, that's the cure, more sin? It can be subtle, like the fleshly response to debt. You're kind of drowning in debt, and what's the fleshly response? Well, I can certainly shave a little bit off that tax return. It's the government, right? The big, it's Caesar. I mean, I can certainly do that. God, you would understand. I don't have to be totally forthright in my tax return. Or it can be loud. Like the fleshly response and solution to suffering that just says, kill me. I don't want to suffer anymore. Kill me. It's like Saul. Church, that is thinking according to the flesh. And that is the context of Ishmael's birth. Do you see that? That's fleshly thinking. That's flesh works is what that is. And that, of course, is contrasted to Isaac's birth, which may have occurred 25 years later. But listen, it may have occurred 25 years later. But mark this, beloved, your God, it happened. Just as God promised. It happened. Not on their timetable, certainly not on Sarah's timetable, but do you see, God delivered just as he said he would, through promise, just as God himself had said. I love the text in Genesis 21, it makes it so clear, two times it says, just as God, Sarah bore, just as God had said. Amazing. And that is always the way with God's promise. But you see, it means waiting on the Lord's timetable, not hurrying to fulfill yours. That's what that means. It means trusting in the Lord's reasoning, not relying on your own. Proverbs 3. Two births show us two ways. That's one contrast. Let's look at the next. Two births and also two covenants. Two covenants. Turn your attention to verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Paul introduces the next contrast, two covenants, with this statement. He says this, now this may be interpreted allegorically. 
In other words, there's a way to look at these two women. This is so key. There's a way to look at these two women and these two sons. There's a way here and now that we can interpret them, and it is simply allegory. Now, before we let our experiences, impressions, or even for some of us, our fears with allegory take over, we need to make sure we properly define and understand the terms. So often, what do we say? It's just defining the terms. We get so worked up so, um, sometimes, and the terms aren't even defined. Allegory, as the word you see it there is stated, it simply means this. Let me lay the definition before you. To use a set of realities to speak of another set of realities. Very simple. I mean, we do this all the time. And it's straightforward, and we recognize the New Testament does this often. What about Jesus in John 15? When he wanted to teach about what it means to abide in him, the reality of abiding in him, what other reality did he go to? Vine and the branches and fruit. Are any of those things fictitious? No. He took one reality and he said it's just like this reality. What about Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 when he wanted to talk about self-control and self-discipline and and that's how we come to others and, you know, sacrifice for them. What did he talk about? The athlete who runs to win what? The wreath. Talked about boxing your body and all these things. Two realities. Self-control is a reality and running the race to win the wreath. You see that in cases of John or Jesus in John 15 and Paul using one set of realities to illustrate another set of realities. That's it. Using truth to interpret another truth. Very straightforward. What we need to address then are two sets of baggage that may arise. And now I recognize this isn't for everybody. Those of you that have been interpreting scripture for a while, some of you very, very keenly are like, wow, I see that word and it's a red alert. So we need to address some of the baggage that even in the church, this word allegory has brought. And here's the first one. And you'll know this one, even if you're not familiar with the word allegory, that, that allegory is based on an interpretation that is not reality. Men, we talked about this last summer, church we did with Jonah. So this is Genesis. This is allegory, is an interpretation that goes to the Bible and says, well, you know what, that's really good life stuff. Right, Adam and Eve, I mean, really, Adam and Eve, were they real? Jonah, right, remember? I mean, three days in the digestive system of a whale. I mean, Joseph, these are great lessons, right? But I mean, really, are they based on real? So Jonah, being in the whale of Jonah, is not really about a man being in the digestive tract of a whale, but, but re, and, and the sovereignty of God to do that. No, 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 but really, Jonah, we need to take to Jonah and allegorize it and say it's the great human struggle. We'll go down and we'll come up. That's a wonderful story. And, you know, David and Goliath, I mean, I can't imagine a little pipsqueak, right, with this big Goliath. I mean, I can't imagine. That just couldn't have happened. I mean, really, how could that have happened in my fleshly thinking? But, man, Goliath is your great struggle. What's your Goliath today, right? You've all heard that. That's, that's allegory. That, that's saying, you know what, God didn't write a divinely inspired book. He wrote a storybook. And you know, it's great that you're here this morning and we can get a little bit of life lessons, a little pick-me-up to get you through Tuesday, maybe. No, God wrote an inerrant book based on history and the marvel of it all is that he puts it all together. Kind of getting ahead of myself, but you, you see, this is not the way to interpret Scripture. And you're going to say, well, Paul is saying that. We're going to get to what Paul is doing in a moment. So I understand the dangers of allegory. Listen, allegory is great for Pilgrim's Progress. The Chronicles of Narnia, I love it. Works of fiction. It's great. In fact, you can read those things when you recognize them for what they are. Really gifted writers, Bunyan and Lewis, writing great tales that point you to these realities. What Paul is doing here is very different to those. But the second piece of baggage, and I think you can see where we're going with this, is people will say allegory is bad. All allegory is bad. Well, think about what you're saying if you say that. Some, I was telling the men this morning, in a very honest and vigorous defense of biblical interpretation, come to a text like this and just say, well, it just can't be allegory. I mean, we, right? You know, red alert, and this major, we break out in hives with allegory and say, no, no, it can't be that. It just, it can't be that. 
And we can understand this above, right? We've talked about uh, this before, how people will approach Scripture this way. And I was reminded this morning, too, in those early centuries, there were interpreters that went crazy with allegory. And we understand, then, why people would have an allergy to it. But listen to me. Just because something is misused doesn't make it bad. And people will want to do this with money and technology. Listen to me. The issue is, we've talked about this so often with men, right? These are amoral entities. Money is not good or bad. It's the love of money. Technology is not good or bad, although you can make cases for both those things that really, you know what I mean, they're taking us astray. But the point is, in and of themselves, they're not bad. Just like allegory. In fact, can you not use money and technology to good ends? Of course you can. Beloved, it's the same with allegory. It's the same with taking one truth to help you understand another truth. And that is precisely what Paul is doing here with this allegory. Church, what Paul is doing is simply taking an Old Testament reality from the history of Israel and showing how it maps directly to the New Testament reality of the covenants. In fact, more than avoidance, these types of connections should elicit wonder. It never ceases to amaze me, beloved, when you think about this. It's real historical events. How your God, the sovereign God of all creation, puts it all together. Isn't it a marvel? How in the world can he take this account from the life of Abraham? This disobedience. This, you know, it may be that I'd get a child through her. And years and centuries later, it would be mapped to the reality of who we are now as children of the promise. Isn't that amazing? Don't cheapen your God and say, well, that can't possibly be real. That's just a really good fable. Aesop would be proud. No, this is your God. This is what he does. This book is a majestic wonder of interconnected truth, all based on history. And it's a marvel. God's providence. And here we see in the Bible two realities intersecting. Abraham's two sons and two very different set of covenants. This foreshadowing, I should mention, couldn't have been known then, by the way. It couldn't have been known then. And listen, we still miss it today, even with the word in front of us, if it wasn't for passages like this that we take time with. And that's why we need, as we say all the time, all of our Bibles, Old Testament and New. Now, that disclaimer out of the way, let's return to Paul's explanation in verse 24. He says, these women are two covenants. In other words, Hagar and Sarah and their sons or children are like covenants. That's simply what he's mapping. And covenants that we're very familiar with at this point in Galatians. This is no surprise to us when we think of these two covenants in view. One, the first, Paul says in verse 24, look at it, is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. And you get some cues in that verse. That covenant from Sinai, which we've talked about, is, of course, the Mosaic Covenant. And we looked at that in depth in chapter 3. And also the fact, as we studied in chapter 3, the slavery that the Mosaic Law represents, especially now, as Paul and others are looking at it, right, and to come back under it, the slavery that it represents. The type of slavery that presents the standard and says, this is it. This, this is the standard. But it's the type of slavery that gives you no way to meet it, right? It says, this is the standard, meet it, but there is no enablement. In fact, it's frustration and futility. It's a slavery of works, unending works. It's a slavery of try as you might and you're never going to hit it. Just keep trying. And Paul here says that slavery is like Hagar. And remember, think about Hagar. Let's go back to Genesis 16. Think of what Sarah said. Hagar looked like the solution, right? Can you just imagine Sarah? Well, I have Hagar. Well, this is perfect. She's fertile. Abraham, take her, right? It's exactly what's going on here. That works. Listen, Hagar wasn't it. If we could push the illustration further, it wasn't enough. It didn't do it. Just like the Mosaic Law. In case we miss the connection, Paul restates it with more emphasis. Look at verse 25. This is where he really begins to press in. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai. Do you see that direct connection? In Arabia. 
She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she's in slavery with her children. So not only is Hagar like Mount Sinai in Arabia and the covenant there at Sinai, but she corresponds, do you see that, to the present Jerusalem. Now let's not miss what Paul is saying here. What's he saying? He's going to, remember we talked about how he's taking everything that the Judaizers and the Jew would have thought and turned it on its head? Well, one of the ways he does that is he's going to take these sacred things, two of them, a mountain and a temple, and he's going to turn them on their head, or I should say a city, but more than a temple. Look at what he's doing. Mount Sinai, yes, the mountain of the Mosaic law, revered by Jews and Judaizers. Yet he reminds them here, look at what he does. It may seem like so subtle. This is where every word is important. He says, Mount Sinai, oh, and don't miss this, the geography, which is where? In Arabia. Mount Sinai in Arabia. That is not only Gentile land, but did you know that is actually Ishmael land? That's Ishmael land. Your revered mountain is in Ishmael's land. It is true, according to Genesis 25, Hagar and Ishmael were expelled to the land of the east which would become to be known as Arabia. Now, we're going to look at that expulsion later, but isn't it interesting what Paul is doing here to say, you know what? Your sacred mountain is in Ishmael's land. You want to come under that mountain, that covenant? It's Ishmael's land. Paul reminds them that their mountain, Mount Sinai, is in Ishmael territory. Now, that's one connection. Look at the other one at the end of verse 25. Let's look at 25 again. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she's in slavery with her children. Now, that is interesting. I mean, I want you to think for a moment of Jerusalem. If Sinai was the mountain, then Jerusalem is the city, right? Jerusalem is the city, the holy city. I mean, the grand temple, the long pilgrimages. Jerusalem was their city. Yet all of that, temple and all, represented a religion, It represented a system. The earthly Jerusalem stood for pilgrimages and feasts and offerings, but like a beacon of what? The Old Covenant. That's what it was, a beacon of the Old Covenant, like the Mosaic Law, incarnate almost. A temple, a city then, that represented all things old and Old Covenant. That's Paul's point. And that is, by the way, if you... Wonder little details that are not so little, Matthew twenty seven fifty one, a certain curtain is torn in two upon the death of Christ, right? It's a symbolic act, right? That's it. There's now access to the Father. You don't need ceremony and works. Christ has taken care of that. A divine action that redefined all things old, and especially old law works. And imagine Paul here takes the mountain and the temple, and listen, he equates them with Hagar and Ishmael. That's the association. And he says, those things equate to slavery. I mean, this is nothing short of staggering for the Jew. Paul says, those things you desire and want to come under, Sinai and Jerusalem, Represent in a broad sense the old covenant, and Paul says, really, what you're looking to come under is slavery, children of slavery. That's Hagar, that's one covenant. Now the other, look at verse 26. But, so here's the contrast, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. The Jerusalem that is above, you see that expression, on the other hand, represents a different covenant. So now we're looking at a different covenant, a covenant of promise of promise through Abraham, right through to the one, the seed, remember that it's promised to, the one Jesus Christ who came from above and is coming to take us back there to the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the geographical center of the new covenant. And as children of that covenant, our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3.20 says that. We look forward to our pilgrimage to that city, with the saints that have gone before us, Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12. That Jerusalem above is free because in the new covenant, its children are free. Free because they're no longer in bondage to the law. And here it is, because they're not under that law, but they're under Christ, the law of Christ, which we're going to look at at the end of Galatians. They are now not only under that law of Christ, but they're in Christ. 
the one who fulfilled the law and secured their residence in the Jerusalem above. That is new covenant freedom versus old covenant slavery. And again here, these two women represent these two covenants, right? Hagar representing Sinai and the Mosaic covenant and Sarah and Isaac, the covenant of promise. Paul bolsters the comparison with another Old Testament picture. Look at verse 27. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. That quotation is taken word for word from Isaiah 54.1. And the context of those words... The history of those words were to the Jews who were in exile, Jewish exiles in Babylon, given to encourage them, right? Think about those desolate circumstances. Those words were written through the prophet Isaiah to give those exiles hope. It is desolate now, but look, look ahead, look up. I am still here. Those exiled Jews were like, and here it is now, they were like a barren one. Do you see that? They were not bearing any children. They're in exile. It's done. Those exiles were not breaking forth. Do you see the words there? In labor pains. No, there was no labor to be had. There were no multiplication. And when you look at that, you say, well, that sounds familiar. That barren language and children language. And yes, that was like Sarah. And this is the comparison. Sarah, barren, childless, none to be seen. And here's where you pause and you realize in that moment you're tempted, right? To turn to your own devices. And not turn to God. But what does God say? God, through the prophet Isaiah, look at it, says, Rejoice, O barren one. And I love that. Rejoice, and there's a sense there. You could almost do a whole other piece just on this. Rejoice in your circumstances. Rejoice in the fact that you're barren. And the barren one says, How in the world can I do that? Why? God says, For the children of the desolate one, the present barren Jerusalem, like Sarah, barren now, but one day soon, look at verse 27, one day... Her children will be more than those of the one who has a husband. This is magnificent. If we can track with this. Hagar, given to Abraham as a wife, hence that husband-wife imagery, she produced, she was like instant children, right? All of a sudden a child through Hagar, and it seemed to be the thing. In fact, do you know Ishmael went on to produce 12 sons, as the Bible says, populating a region? It seemed very productive, right? It seemed fertile. It seemed right to us. However, that was nothing compared to what the barren one would one day produce. Right? Do you see our limited scope and vision? If we just kept it to Ishmael, we would say, well, that's fine. But let's go back to the promise. What is the promise? Through you, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's not just a region. That's not Arabia. That's not just 12 princes in Arabia. That's all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You talk about population explosion. Children, as Genesis 15, 5 states, as innumerable as the stars. That's your God. That's your God. Such are the children of that covenant, one day populating the Jerusalem above. And the contrast, think of the contrast to the old covenant children in bondage to the Jerusalem below, lesser things. Paul, referencing this great prophecy, says, Don't miss the great covenant truth. Desiring the law is not only desiring slavery, but it's desiring something less. And even more, I would submit to you, Westmount, desiring something that God did not intend for you now. Something earthly, something external, something that seems to be something, but it really isn't. Like Hagar and her son Ishmael. Hagar... Ishmael, Sinai, Jerusalem below, all representing things old. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of slavery. Versus Sarah, Isaac, the new Jerusalem above, standing for that covenant. The covenant of promise. Covenant of freedom, true freedom. Two covenants in Galatians, Paul says, and Westmount we say today, you are children only of one. You don't have a foot in both waters. You're children of one of those. And this is what Paul is pressing the Galatians. So that's one more. Two births, two covenants, two ends. Two ends. Look at verse 28 with me. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, 
or children of promise. This again, a tender reminder from Paul to the Galatians. Don't miss this through what would seem like firm rebukes or admonitions. Look at what he says. Now you brothers, that enduring, endearing term again, speaking of their unity in Christ, like Isaac, our children of promise. Paul says, that's you, Galatia, that's you. You are not of Ishmael. You are not of that slave son. You're not of slavery at all. You are of Isaac. You are like Isaac, children of promise. And that reality explains what's happening now as the Judaizers torment you. And that's what it would have been, you know, and this is the thing, a loving protector and father figure Paul was protecting these Galatians. And what he's trying to tell them, we're going to see this in a moment, that they're mocking you. They're persecuting you and you don't see it. That's what they're doing. But he's also going to do something more and say, look, what they're doing to you is actually, not only is it wrong and a false gospel, but it's also nothing new. He goes back to the Hagar-Sarah account to prove this. Look at verse 29. He says, just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is with you. And what is Paul saying there? We need to go back. We don't have to flip there. But at the time of birth, there would have been a gap, by the way, of 13, 14 years between Ishmael and Isaac. So Ishmael would have been considerably older. So he's there, right? Like imagine a teenager having an infant brother. Well, as Isaac, his infant brother, is getting weaned off his mother, the text says, as if we were to go back there in Genesis 21, what does Ishmael do? He mocks his brother. In fact, Abraham wants to have a feast because Isaac's weaned. He's getting older. And what does Ishmael do? Scorn. He has scorn for his brother. That's what Paul's referring to. A mocking, a persecution. But listen, it wasn't just in the weaning. That would continue throughout childhood and a persecution that would persist beyond those sons' lives. Remember, both of those sons, Isaac through Jacob, Ishmael himself, would produce 12 12 sons that would go on to represent something very different. Those of the slave, Hagar, the works, in contrast, right, and enduring the constant attack, or sorry, those of the promise enduring the constant attack of those of the slave. And Paul says in verse 29, and so it is also now. Look at those words in verse 29. So it is also now. You can quibble about when this text was written in the first century, but listen to me. You only have to turn on the news to see this continuing to this day. Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael and Isaac. You just do a a cursory overview of the Middle East. And those of you know exactly what I'm talking about. This never ends. And reading so much encouraging things today on the endurance of Israel. The endurance of Israel. How God's preserving hand is on Isaac's children. Uh, anyway, that's a whole other story. But, but, but you see in verse 29, a truth still today. That mocking, that attack, that constant at them. The slave to the free. But Paul can't leave the Genesis account without this reminder. Look at verse 30. He's been going back so often and he says this. But what does the scripture say again? What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit With the son of the free woman. And here is where the contrast between the two sons reaches its peak. After that mocking from Ishmael, Sarah begged Abraham, did you know? She begs Abraham, cast her out. I can't take this anymore. And you can understand. Cast out Hagar and her son. Abraham, the text says, was displeased with that. You can imagine, right? Abraham's like, cast her out. I mean, he didn't like that. But listen, do you know who did? God. God said, yes, do it. God said, do it. God said two things. He said to Abraham, yes, cast her out. And so Hagar and Ishmael were cast out. They were gone. And two, God also reminded Abraham of what was still near to him. Yes, cast her out. But listen, you know what he says? You have Isaac, the son of the promise. Amazing. In Genesis 21, 12, God says, it is through Isaac that your offspring shall be named. What a reminder. But also, what a reminder, two very different ends captured. Look at the end of verse 30. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. You see that? Inheritance again. Those are two very different ends, are they not? To be cast out 
and to inherit. Two very different ends. In other words, there's no cohabitation. There's no relationship, a clear division. Hagar and Sarah, Ishmael and Isaac represent here two very different ends as you walk through those contrasts. One, the slave woman and son, their end is to be cast out. The other, the free woman and son, their end is inheritance. Those two ways represented in these two sons, each with very different ends. And beloved, there you see, I pray starkly, the message of Galatians can't be put more vividly. We would say it this way, a religion of works and a religion of promise cannot coexist. There is no union. There's no overlap. There's no a little bit of my works in my promise. It's either promise alone or, God forbid, works alone. Just like slavery and freedom do not mix, Christian, you are either a slave or you are free. You're not intermixing those two. And Paul reminds the Galatians and us here at Westmount who we are. Finally, verse 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Children, you are not cast out like Ishmael, he says. You are children of promise, like Isaac. This means that your birth condition, Christian, is like Isaac. Supernatural, and by God's intervention, and by Christ, who is free. It means your covenant is through Isaac, not Ishmael. Through Isaac. One, when you think about covenant, of what Christ has done. Not what you're bringing to the table. What Christ has done for you. And it means your end is like Isaac. With an inheritance of promise to Christ and in Christ. How often, friends, do we need to be admonished like these Galatians? How often do we feel, even in our freedom, that there is still more to do? How often do we desire the law, the works of the law, to perfect our faith? I was thinking of this this week, and I met with one of you, and one of you reminded me of this. I'm like, man, you know, things like this, we know it, right? This is like the Christianese thing, and I was just thinking about exhorting you, and you're talking about that, and you reminded me, Jason, we need this every day. We fail and we stumble and then we get up and before we look at the cross, we're like, what can I do to get right with God? You reminded me, this text is timeless. We need it all the time. And, when, and this is why, beloved, we say we need daily reminders of God's word. Texts like this you will miss if you're not in your word every day. You will miss these reminders, as Jerry Bridges says, when you preach the gospel to yourself every day. You will miss this. Because we so quickly forget, and like the Galatians, we too so quickly desert. The gospel truth we abandon. And what is it that we've been set free? We are no longer children of slavery. We are not of Ishmael. We are of Isaac. However, Christian, our status as children of the free has many implications. And that is where Paul is going to go. We have two chapters remaining in Galatians, and that's what we're going to look at and We begin that journey next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder that as we reminded ourselves today, we would miss when we neglect your word. So God, continue to draw us back to your word. Encourage us in your word that we are children of the free. God, please, we beg as we go out into our weeks, as we feel that pull to our own way, that pull to slavery, God, remind us of who we are in you. Amen.